Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. We're only doing one verse today. But there's 14 points of application, so there's a lot here. Let me pray for us before we get started. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your word. We know that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. It exposes the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And uh, even though we're looking at just one verse today, I imagine there's much at the tip of that sword that will cut very deeply in some cases. And so we're asking for grace to receive it, grace to sit under the judgment and scrutiny of your word, and then also for your grace to heal us up again and send us out able to obey it. And I pray that as a result, uh, everyone here would be able to uphold marriage and honor that it may properly point forward and point to Christ and his love for his church. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Owen Strayan published a book called Reenchanting Humanity, A Theology of Mankind. And to introduce the book, he borrows this idea of enchantment. Enchantment, not in the sense of kind of placing you under a spell, but uh, enchantment in the sense of dazzling you with true beauty, filling you with delight. Enchantment, he thinks, captures what occurs when we grasp the Bible's view of humanity. God, the beautiful one, made the human race as his capstone work, his corporeal masterpiece. But when it comes to our skeptical, secularist era, we've been told that we people are the chance result of impersonal chaos working its dark magic on the universe. We have no divine origin. There is no design or telos to our bodies and identities, and there is no God. What's the outcome of such thinking, he asks? Well, humanity is disenchanted not filled with wonder. When society views itself apart from their divine origin, when society rejects the creator's design, when society ignores the goal of their existence, why God made us what we are, 
it spirals downward into an ugly and pointless chaos. But to grasp the Bible's vision of humanity and what God does in Christ to remake humanity into his image is to become filled with wonder, dazzled with with true beauty. And that's what his book goes on to develop. Well, I'd like to borrow that idea, but apply it to marriage, which is the focus of Hebrews 13.4. For our skeptical secularist era, marriage is disenchanted. Society strips marriage of its divine origins. They reject the creator's design. They ignore the end to which marriage points. And what's the result? Well, a downward spiral into dark and pointless chaos. For many, marriage is nothing more than a sexual handshake, a bureaucratic stamp for one's personal choices, no-fault divorce laws and prenuptial agreements reinforce that covenant devotion, it's out, and my dreams, they're in. Others redefine marriage to suit their own sexual interests. Porn functions like a new sex ed class, teaching all who view it that people are just parts, that the person isn't to be cherished but just used, and that sex can be seized without cost or commitment. Society has also learned to shame the one who's waiting for marriage while boasting in their latest one-night stand. So what's honorable, they shame, and what's shameful, they honor. But the Bible, not only does it recognize such abuses, not only does it recognize such, such chaos, it also dazzles us with something far more beautiful. God created marriage good. It's a sacred institution in which God himself joins one man to one woman in an exclusive covenant relationship. And by his design, these two, they partner in grace to glorify their Redeemer's covenant-keeping love. A love that began in eternity past when God chose for his son a bride. A love that then displays itself in history, when that son gave his life for his bride. And what's the goal? Well, how they live together on earth should foreshadow how our Savior's jealous commitment will crown the last day of history with his marriage to us. So marriage has a divine origin, a covenantal design, and a Christ-centered end. Truly, It's an enchanting parable. Well, holding fast to that vision of marriage, though, isn't easy. It requires endurance. And not just because the culture feeds us one self-centered lie after another, but because we have our own sinful tendencies to deal with. If not careful, our own view of marriage can become disenchanted. It can spiral into unholy things. Hebrews 13.4 exists to keep that from happening. I want to read it together now. 
He says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now remember the context. Hebrews 13 closes the letter with one command after another. Those commands don't stand alone. They grow from the rich gospel truths that he rehearsed earlier in Hebrews. More immediately, though, consider again how he ended chapter 12. He says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship or service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so chapter 12 ends on the note of offering God acceptable service. And that service grows out of God's work in Christ. If you turn back to chapter 9, verse 14, just for a moment, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so Jesus' blood purifies us from the dead works in order to serve or worship the living God in things like brotherly love, in things like showing hospitality, in things like visiting those in prison, and in things like now, marriage. What does serving Christ in relation to marriage Look like? How does Jesus want you and me to view marriage? Well, listen to that first part again. Let marriage be held in honor among all. He doesn't mean just any union that our culture decides to call marriage. The command isn't to honor a so called same sex marriage. That sort of union the Bible describes elsewhere as shameful and unnatural. We honor the marriage that God instituted from the beginning. The one that joins one man to one woman in a single exclusive covenant union as delineated in scripture. That's the marriage Jesus himself holds in honor when he points a a gang of hard-hearted Pharisees back to Genesis 2. Let that marriage union be held in honor. To hold it in honor means that you esteem it as something precious. We find this same word elsewhere. 1 Peter 1.19 speaks of the precious blood of Christ. Revelation 21.11 compares the New Jerusalem to a most rare or precious jewel. Or how about this one from Proverbs 31 verse 10. An excellent wife. She is far more precious than jewels. And now the same word appears here, saying that we ought to esteem the marriage relationship as one that's honored, that's held as precious among all. Among all, he says. So the command here isn't for married people only, it's for all of you. It's for children It's for singles, it's for the widowed, it's for the abandoned. 
even those in hard marriages or marriages to an unbelieving spouse, like 1 Corinthians 7 or 1 Peter 3 points out, all must treat that union as precious. He's not saying that all must get married or that if you're not married, you're lacking what's precious. One only needs to consider Jesus to figure that out. Also, passages like 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Timothy 5 speak directly to the valuable role that non-married and widows play in Christ's church. Verse 4 simply states that marriage in itself is a precious institution, and if it's not held in honor among all, then it will lead to serious problems. So he goes there next, focusing on the marriage bed itself. He says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. And as you probably guess, he's not talking about the actual furniture in the master bedroom. He's referring to the sexual intimacy that God designed as good and holy and to be enjoyed freely within marriage. Don't defile those sexual relations. Hebrews has mentioned this idea of defilement before. Chapter 12, verse 15, talks about the root of bitterness, defiling many. So that's the person that says, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So if we connect the dots here, it's the person who says, I shall be safe, though I choose to sleep around. I shall be safe, though I do sexually inappropriate things in secret. The other place we find defilement language is with its opposite in the person of Jesus in chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, and he explains Jesus this way, holy, innocent, unstained, or another way you could translate that is undefiled. So part of the reason we should keep the marriage bed undefiled is that's what Jesus is like. We want to be holy as he is holy. It's also good to remember that Jesus persevered that way as a man to make us holy and then to bring us into the holy places. So if we've been brought into the, into the holy places, then the unholy things must go. In Christ, we now belong to what's holy. That must play out in relation to the marriage and to the marriage bed. The way people defile the marriage bed is through what the rest of the verse calls sexual immorality and adultery. So adultery is compromising your marriage union with another person, whether physically or relationally. Sexual immorality covers a much broader swath. That's anything you do with your body or with your interactions to gratify yourself or someone else sexually outside the marriage union. Anything you do with your body or with your interactions to gratify yourself or someone else sexually outside the marriage union. So you can be alone and still defile the marriage bed by the pleasures you give yourself to. You can not actually sleep with someone but still interact with them in ways that defile the marriage bed. To the contrary, Christian, we must... Keep the marriage bed undefiled. 
And here's the motive, the end of verse 4. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That's a promise bound up with the gospel. Jesus will return and through him God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 10 emphasize the same thing. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. So he mentioned in that list fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals. They will not enter, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you continue in sinful sexual pleasures over the kingdom of God, God will exclude you from his kingdom. That's a good motive for striving for sexual purity. The gospel we preach includes the promise of judgment for those who want their sin more than Christ. Is that you? If so then repent and turn from away from your wickedness to Jesus Christ. The gospel we preach also includes the promise of salvation to those who repent and place their faith in Jesus and choose to follow him. 1 Corinthians 6.11 also says this, and such were some of you. Right? So some of you were fornicators. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were homosexuals. But he goes on to add, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So not only does Jesus cleanse you from your former sins, he makes you holy and right before God such that you are no longer what you were. It's what you were, not what you are in Christ. But that's just it. If that's no longer what, if, if you are no longer what you were, then pursue what you now are in Jesus. You are his. You are holy. Sex is not your master. Christ is. You are his servant. Pursue what he calls good. Choosing to do otherwise will only invite the Lord's judgment. So let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, having explained verse 4, how can we better ensure that we honor marriage and keep the marriage bed undefiled? What are some things we ought to consider and practice as individuals? as married couples, and as a church. So first, I have a few exhortations for you as individuals. A few. The first five of 14, so here we go. Beware of worldly ideas that devalue marriage or strip sex from its marriage context. We live in a day where to claim any moral high ground is viewed as oppressive. But as Christians, we must recognize 
that the real oppression occurs when humanity rejects our Creator's designs. His word rightly orders relationships and brings true freedom, the freedom to live as we ought. That includes what God says about marriage and sex. That means we cannot embrace worldly ideas that contradict God's word about marriage or sex, whether it's the sexual revolution or the Supreme Court decisions or a Netflix series. Our culture inundates us with ideas that redefine marriage or treat it lightly or turn so cynically against it that fewer and fewer people want it. What the one comedian say? To be single is to be lonely, and to be married is to be miserable. And so what do people do? They choose not to be married and not to be lonely, solving it with other promiscuous things. There's also a constant trickle in the media attempting to desensitize you to sexually immoral relationships. And at times, they even make it cute. Sometimes we call them chick flicks. You may even find yourself justifying it. Well, good for her. But we must be more discerning. Do you think it's an accident that nearly every letter in the New Testament addresses some warped view of sex or marriage or the use of our body? Every culture since the first century and before that has gone insane with sexual idolatry. We're still worshiping the same gods. They just have different names. So we have to be alert to the deception that permeates our culture. The world says that if marriage compromises your personal fulfillment in any way, then get out. And we must say no. And then help them see that true fulfillment can only be found in Christ and how marriage pictures Christ's commitment to us. The world says that same-sex marriage is a thing, but we must say no, it isn't. God defines marriage, not man. And based on God's definition, same-sex marriage cannot exist. It is impossible. The world knows that sex sells. Provocative ads attempt to draw your attention to anything from Doritos to dental care. Sexy teeth. You've seen it driving down 30. The music industry routinely strips sex from the marriage setting. So be alert. Be discerning. Don't grow accustomed to it. If any, it's not normal. If anything, it's abnormal. We're out of step with God's creative designs. Anything less than the Bible's vision for marriage and sex will harm couples and families and children. Next. Bring your sexually immoral thoughts, desires, and actions into the light of Christ. Bring them into the light of Christ. Sin thrives in the darkness. Intentions of the heart hide in darkness. Are you hiding sexual immorality in the darkness? 
I'm telling you, it will devour you there. And it will devour your family there. And it will devour the other relationships that you have in your life there. It will suck your joy and destroy your soul. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Her feet go down to death. So come to the light of Christ and save your life. Find trustworthy brothers and sisters and confess your lusts and immorality. Ask them to pray for your purity and joy in Christ. If you've sinned against your spouse, seek their forgiveness for your betrayal. If your spouse is caught in immorality and refuses to repent, then you need to expose the darkness. You need to find other godly brothers and sisters to help you walk this out. And if, if, if you need more help, please come to the elders. We will walk with you and seek to help you as best we know how according to Scripture. Another, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's Romans 3.14. Cut off everything that arouses lustful desires and compromises purity and thought. The Bible tells us that temptations are going to come. We live in a fallen, broken, and rebellious world. Temptations are going to come. But we must not create occasions for sexual temptation like accessing sensual images or getting into situations that make us vulnerable to defiling the marriage bed. For those lacking self-control, it means getting rid of your iPhone, tablets, personal laptops, Roku, and whatever else you may use to access moral content, immoral content. Until you mature in self-control, cut them off. If you need a phone, get a regular phone. If you need a computer, use it only in public places. As much as possible, avoid situations with other people, too, that may tempt you toward immorality. More importantly, though, pursue the superior pleasures of of the all-glorious God who reveals himself in Christ. We've been here before in Hebrews. Ben took us there a couple weeks ago in Matthew. True repentance doesn't just avoid sin. It turns to the Lord himself for true satisfaction. Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26 says, By faith Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting, important word there, fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The pleasures of sin are real. They feel good. They're just fleeting. The pleasures of God in Christ are superior, more rewarding, and they last forever. True repentance will come only when you find the superior pleasures in God to silence the false promises of sexual temptation. And lastly, for you as individuals, utilize means of grace such as meditating on Scripture and seeking God in prayer and gathering with the church. 
Okay, over time, numerous brothers have asked me to help them walk away from sexual immorality. And this is a good thing. God exposes it. They come. Here it is. This is what I'm doing. That's a good thing. One of the first questions I ask them is how much time they spend in word and prayer. And in every case so far, time in word and prayer has been largely absent. That is no coincidence. God's self-revelation in Scripture is how we know God and how we hear from God and what He thinks about our lives and what He thinks about us. It's how we behold the pleasures of His glory in Christ. So get in the book. Also, our dependence on God in prayer is how we gain His powerful presence to overcome temptations. I mean, not to read his word and pray is like trying to drive a car without ever refueling. You ain't going nowhere. You have no life in your engine. So get in the word and pray and rehearse the glories of Christ and then don't do it alone. Do it together. God has given you a people. They're in this room. You've made a covenant with one another. Walk out repentance and faith. All right, let me now shift to a few words for married people. Hold your marriage in honor. Treat it as something precious. Hold your marriage in honor. We do not honor marriage by standing against false views of marriage in society while neglecting to tend to our own marriage. If I asked, how do you honor your marriage? And the only thing you can say is, well, we're not divorced. We're not sleeping around. We stand against homosexuality. We don't fight much. I don't look at porn. If that's all you can say, you do not honor your marriage. You do not hold it as something precious. Is, is that really how we show what's precious to us? By everything we don't do? No, we cherish the things that are precious to us. We hold them dear. We talk about them. We spend time on them. We protect them and treat them with care. They come to mind often. We invest in them. We plan things around them. Is this how you treat your marriage? In a number of ways, I have not treated my marriage this way. Protecting it from sexual immorality? Yes. By God's grace, yes. Working hard to provide by grace, yes. But this aspect, this more positive aspect of treasuring it, holding it as precious, no. And it has brought pain and hurt and emotional weariness to Rachel, who has invested so faithfully. 
And I have regrets as a husband for not recognizing it sooner. But we're trusting the God of new creation. Brothers and sisters, if you do not hold your marriage in honor such that it leads you to proactive care, proactively laying down your life for one another, let today be the first of many more where the Lord turns your ash heap of a marriage into a beautiful one. That's what he's in the business of doing. Creating beauty from ashes. Also, watch out for various other commitments tearing your marriage apart. For instance, I mean, generating more money, more revenue can serve you and it can serve others, but those goals can often come without consideration for an employee's marriage. Businesses may ask you to stay a lot, may ask you to stay late a lot. They may ask you to work from afar a lot. They may expect you to be on call every moment, every evening, all through the weekend. If not careful, work commitments can hinder building a healthy marriage. I'm not saying that every instance of this sort of thing is wrong. I'm just saying to be alert with your work commitments. Be alert, be alert at how much you're giving yourself to those text messages in the evenings. Employers are usually not asking how you can do your job while still honoring your marriage, but you need to be concerned with that. Maybe it's not an employer asking you to do more. Maybe it's just you who want to do more. I know that because I'm talking about myself in that last comment. Same with the demands of school. If, if because of studies you can't invest in your marriage properly, then take fewer hours at a time. Take a C on the paper or adjust the plan altogether. Sometimes extracurricular activities for the kids can stretch a family so thin that a couple has no margin or energy left to invest in each other. I'm talking about baseball and soccer and ballet and everything else that you could possibly, maybe even good things to commit yourself to. But if you're driving kids around five hours every night of the week with nothing left for each other, you probably need to make some changes. One of the best gifts that you can give to your children is a healthy marriage. Something else for married couples. Delight in the Lord's good gift of your spouse. Delight in the Lord's good gift to your spouse. Adam uses poetry to describe Eve. He's really excited about her. 1 Timothy 4.3 says that God created marriage to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Proverbs 5.18-19 encouraged the husband to delight himself 
in the wife of his youth. Song of Songs provides an intimate portrayal of the husband enchanting his wife with beautiful words. Ephesians 5 says that husbands should cherish their wives. I mean, this includes things like talking with her often. Right? God, our husband, is not silent with us. He speaks. Talking with her often. Truly listen when she speaks. Looking into her eyes and reassuring her of your commitment to her. Means showing affection and learning to enjoy the person that God has made her to be and not the person you want her to be or trying to force her to be. Means honoring her before the, chil- the, the children and encouraging her in the Lord. When we delight in our spouse rightly, not only do we please our spouse, but we honor God with our pursuits and then we nurture, we help nurture covenant fidelity within the marriage. Another way to nurture fidelity and keep the marriage bed undefiled is this. Cultivate healthy sexual relations in marriage. And yes, we're going there. The culture is going to take your kids there. And in some unholy ways. So let's talk about it in the church in holy ways. Cultivate healthy sexual relations in marriage. Proverbs 5.18 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That imagery may sound foreign, but the point is clear. Intimacy within marriage is a good gift, and it's to be celebrated. uh, Solomon's Song of Songs bears this out as well, depicting the ideal marriage as a return to Eden, where there is one flesh, they are both naked, and they are not ashamed. Of course, we know that such liberation, such freedom to enjoy one another without shame, only comes through the one who is greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 to 5 also says this, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So sex in marriage has the purpose of finding great pleasure in the spouse God has given to you. And one of the benefits is greater self-control against temptation. It's not a matter here of taking your rights, but of gladly giving them to, to the other. Some seasons will inevitably call for greater sacrifice and energy. But one of the things we tell couples in premarital counseling is to avoid such an overtaxed schedule that leaves no room for intimacy. Also, relational distance and hurt, bitterness, distrust, all of these things can can hinder intimacy, and sometimes a lack of sexual intimacy can spiral into more resentment, bitterness, shame, and so on. And that's not healthy. 
work toward reconciliation. Return to the cross for forgiveness and for cleansing from sin. Return to Jesus who bore away your shame. Return to Jesus so that you are viewing one another in light of his justifying work on the cross. Rebuild trust so that intimacy can flourish. It's not that the sex act itself is the goal, but so loving your spouse that the relational bond you share enables you to give yourself freely to one another. All right, finally, some words for us as a church when it comes to honoring marriage. Keeping the marriage bed undefiled. As a church, pray for the Lord to protect marriages. Pray for the Lord to protect marriages. Some of you started praying on Tuesday nights with Ben. Add that to the list. To pray for the marriages in the church. Marriage is not exempt from the cosmic battle. I mean, just think about what it's supposed to picture. Christ and his church, and Satan hates that. In fact, the Bible storyline doesn't get too far before we see the enemies attacked within the marriage. Satan tempts Eve while Adam passively watches and then follows her into rebellion. Ephesians 6 includes a section on spiritual warfare and prayer right after a section on relationships, marriage included. And he says, your battle is not against flesh and blood. Apply that to husband and wife. That's the flesh and blood he's talking about in Ephesians 6. Include, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 5 mentions Satan tempting others with immoral sexual relations. So therefore, we must pray for the Lord to protect marriages and ask him for grace to preserve them and cause them to flourish. Next, appoint leaders with healthy marriages and hold them accountable. Appoint leaders with healthy marriages and hold them accountable. 1 Timothy 3, 2 and 12. These are the passages on elders and deacons. First, and then Titus 1, 6, also on elders. These both state that, elder, that an elder or deacon must be the husband of one wife. More literally, he should be a one-woman man. That doesn't mean that he's simply not a polygamist. If that's your bar, you're going to be in trouble. It also doesn't mean that he's simply not divorced. It means that he's committed to the one woman he's married to. Like, he's devoted to her. He's a one-woman kind of man. She is his one and only. And you can tell it by the way he cares for her and nurtures her. And this is important for the apostles. Because as go the leaders, so go the church. Men like this must be put in place and kept in place if marriages in the church are to grow and have something to imitate. 
If that's not happening among the leaders, then you need to hold them accountable. You need to hold me accountable. Draw near and see how you might be able to help them. If necessary, some leaders may need to step down in order to tend more carefully to this most precious relationship in God's sight. Something else. Look for ways to serve others in their marriages. And for many of you, I could say, keep looking for ways, because a lot of you are already doing this. Often I, I can hear others saying, hey, why don't you let us watch the kids so you guys can get some time together? Some of you have helped watch kids so another couple can go on a short vacation. Older couples who have experience, you can instruct the younger couples in what the Lord has taught you. Those of you walking with Jesus for a long while, you can invite others into your lives often so that they can learn to imitate those things which are good and Christ-like. Other members have done everything that they can to hold their marriage in honor, but their spouse has chosen not to join them in doing so. They are walking a very long and hard and lonely road with no easy answers. We must learn to weep with them, to remember them in prayer, to reach out to them and care for them, to show them hospitality and help them when they're enduring the hurt and the betrayal. Not all spouses will follow Jesus in marriage. Jesus, Paul, and Peter all taught about these kinds of marriages. There are still marriages to be cherished, marriages to be invested in, marriages to, as to the best of your ability, to preserve. But that means it's a hard road. And a long one for many. And it is our responsibility as a church to draw near to these brothers and sisters in their suffering. And help them and comfort them. Also, practice corrective discipline when there's no true repentance from sexual immorality or adultery. The immoral man in 1 Corinthians 5 claimed to be a brother, but he was also defiling the marriage bed. And the apostle instructs him instructs the church, I mean, to, to purge the evil person from among them. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, he says. To tolerate unrepentant sexual immorality does not honor marriage and will also destroy the integrity of the church and compromise the gospel and teach others that it's okay to defile the marriage bed. And King Jesus has put measures in place to keep that from happening, and it's called corrective discipline. The goal here is always restorative. It's always to restore the one who's gone astray. Back to repentance, of course. But where there is no repentance, no real pursuit of what's holy, we cannot sit by idly and do nothing. The story that marriage tells is far too significant. 
Which brings me to the last point for us as a church. Remember the story that marriage points to and rehearse it to one another. Remember the story it points to and rehearse it to one another. The Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. And between those two bookends, we learn what marriage is about. God designed marriage to image Christ's union with his people. Ephesians 5 is probably most helpful here. Paul quotes Genesis 2, and then he says this about marriage. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So even the very first marriage was about Christ and the church. It's not that God created marriage and then decided, hey, that's a pretty good analogy. No, he created marriage to be the analogy that reflected something he already planned before the world existed. God designed marriage between one man and one woman to image Christ's union with his people. Their companionship, their pleasure in each other, their covenant faithfulness is all a window through which we look to see something much bigger than that marriage. In and through marriage, we get a glimpse of God's purpose for the world to give his son a people. A people he would also come to save by laying down his life. That's what Ephesians 5 also develops when it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's what marriage is about. And here's the goal of Jesus dying for his bride, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. If you're in Christ, that's your destiny. That's where you're going. No matter where you are or what you're walking through right now, to belong to Jesus is to belong to the faithful husband, to the true bridegroom, He will hold his marriage in honor. His jealous commitment to your holiness already proved itself in the cross and the resurrection. He will honor his vows, and he proved it by rising from the dead. He will ensure that all his people will belong to him in holiness when he returns again. Truly, marriage is an enchanting parable. So, let it be held in honor among all. Why don't we go now to prayer?